This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. chaos we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos over the next hour marvin hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer more equal society community or chaos is made possible with the support of quakers aotearoa you'll find them online at quaker.org.nz Good day, friends. Today we have with us on Community Chaos Professor Richard Jackson, Director of the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies. His interest, his main interest in his courses are organized forms of political violence, and also he's written about uh, the war on terrorism. Richard, thanks a lot for coming on. And I'll remind the um, listeners that you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to community or chaos. Richard, welcome to a bit of chaos. I'm happy to be here. Nice to see you, Marvin. Richard, the first question I'll ask you is, could you briefly comment on the ACOS defense pact with the U.S., U.K., and Australia, and the nuclear free, uh, submarine deal with Australia. Apparently, it's quite a kerfuffle. Well, it certainly is. And, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that, that could be unpacked there. First of all, the way in which um, uh, Australia has treated its ally France because apparently Australia had a deal with France for submarines and it wanted to get out of that. So it went behind France's back and uh, made a separate deal with the US and that has really upset France and uh, thrown relationships within NATO into disarray as well. Um, At the same time, there's all kinds of issues around um, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and whether or not um, giving Australia nuclear-powered submarines uh, breaks that treaty by uh, nuclear powers giving um, access to nuclear technology and nuclear materials to non-nuclear powers. Um, There's also issues there around whether it's a good idea to bring nuclear materials and nuclear capabilities into the Pacific when the Pacific is trying to be nuclear free. Um, There's also issues around how provocative this is in the conflict between uh, China and the US uh, and the way in which Australia also has complicated relationships with China. So China is its biggest trading partner, but at the same time, it seems to be siding with the US in, um, you know, creating more conflict. Um, It upsets the relationships between Australia and New Zealand. Um, Yeah, it's just a huge big mess. Uh, And it's really not going to make anyone safer. It's likely going to lead to more conflict and misperception and suspicion. And it could even lead to an arms race and increase the chances of uh, military confrontation in the Pacific. Now... 
At this point, are you pleased that we have a fairly strong nuclear free treaty and the government seems to be standing by that? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, perhaps one of the upsides to this uh, situation is that it might be a sort of push for New Zealand to further break away from that um, Anglosphere alliance that's sort of connected around the Five Eyes security arrangement uh, and forge its own Pacific identity and, uh, and you know, set of um, priorities. It could make New Zealand decide to be even more peace-oriented uh, and kind of put a break on New Zealand constantly uh, joining in American and British wars um, and sort of following along with that Anglosphere aggressive foreign policy that they seem to have. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I think something good could come out of it in the long run. Uh, obviously, that would change if, if the National Party got into power again, because, I mean, I think they're much more pro-ANZUS and pro-the US. Um, but we, yeah, this is a really good opportunity for New Zealand to say, well, okay, if that's how you want to be, then then we will forge our own pathway that's much more independent. Apparently, the European Union is think, thinking the same way right now. Yes, the European Union is very upset because, um, you know, obviously France is a major player in the European Union, and they have been treated very, very badly in this um, and they feel that it's a real slight on them. And so the European Union is also thinking, you know, perhaps um, it's better that they forge their own pathway rather than pursue continuing um, strong relations with the, the United States and, and the Anglosphere. Is the world a better place if the European Union is an independent voice? Uh, it's very hard to say. Um, it could be, but also the, you've got to remember that the European Union is, you know, its own sort of imperial superpower. Uh, it's got its own agenda. Um, it's also a very uh, militaristic kind of bloc with some very militaristic countries. You can't forget that France itself is a colonial power with uh, a number of colonial territories in places like Africa, for example, and it regularly intervenes militarily there. It also maintains nuclear weapons, uh, still hasn't, you know, given up its um, imperial territories in the Pacific, and it hasn't settled any of the claims about the harms that it caused through nuclear testing there. So, you know, the European Union is not perfect. Uh, and again, it's, you know, kind of a great power. So, um, yeah, just we've got to be a little bit careful that we don't just assume that, you know, if the European Union takes a different path to the U.S., that it's the good guys. On the August 21st, Amy Goodman of Democracy Now! interviewed Spencer Ackerman a prize-winning national security reporter and author of The Reign of Terror, how 9-11 disabled America and produced Trump. Can you comment on this a bit? Yeah, so my um, immediate impression was that, um, you know, when Spencer Ackerman was talking about 9-11 and the war on terror, that he was absolutely right. Um, you know, declaring a war on terror right at the beginning locked the U.S. into a kind of way of approaching this issue and a frame of reference and a frame of interpretation that really has has created chaos in many ways um, for 20 years. Um, and it's led to decades of conflict and it's led directly to the recent failure that we saw in Afghanistan and the tragedy unfolding there. Um, you know, when 9-11 happened, there was one al-Qaeda group uh, with perhaps two, two or three hundred members uh, over there in Afghanistan. Uh, after a few years of war on terror, uh, there were perhaps a dozen al-Qaeda groups and thousands of different, um, you know, jihadist movements around the world. Uh, and then over the last 20 years of war, we've seen two countries at least invaded 
major wars in other places like Libya and, and Syria. Um, trillions of dollars have been spent. More than a million people have died in these conflicts. Tens of millions of people have been displaced. Thousands of people have been tortured. Uh, drone strikes have spread around the world and uh, killed thousands of innocent civilians. I mean, it's really just been an utter catastrophe. And a lot of it comes directly out of this declaring of the war on terror and this sort of ridiculous idea that using military force, the U.S. could wipe out terrorism wherever it wanted uh, around the world. And everyone had to decide whether they were on the side of terrorists or, or the United States. Um, yeah, it was just a huge, big mistake. And um, it, in many ways, it, it sowed the seeds uh, and has led to other terrible consequences, such as the rise of sort of uh, white supremacy and, and right-wing nationalism uh, and the kind of destabilization that that's, that that's caused through the rise of Trump and Trumpism, uh, as well as other right-wing movements across Europe. Without the war on terror, would Bush have found it less easy to invade Iraq? And didn't invading Iraq destabilize the whole Middle East? It didn't just it didn't just destroy Iraq, but it destabilized Syria and other parts of the Middle East, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah. No, um, invading Iraq was. The, one of the biggest strategic errors of the U.S., um, you know, probably since Vietnam. I mean, it was a terrible, terrible mistake. Um, and it, 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 it's rippled out from there. Um, you know, it's not just that um, that destabilized that whole region uh, and led to, you know, a million deaths and, and tens of millions of refugees and so on. But it also... Um, motivated and uh, generated grievances that led to things like uh, the London underground bombing uh, on the 7th of July uh, 2007, I think it was, the Madrid bombings and a whole range of other um, sort of terrorist attacks around the world. There's a lot of research which shows that Iraq was a massive recruitment tool and a motivator for thousands of, of jihadist groups and individuals around around the world. Um, so it became what, what some scholars have called a self-fulfilling prophecy. By invading Iraq and claiming to be fighting terrorism, it actually created more terrorists. It created more terrorism. It led to more violence and destabilization, which then justified more use of force. Uh, yeah, it was just a terrible, terrible, costly uh, mistake that actually uh, made everything much, much worse than it was before 9-11. And the U.S. had a choice. I mean, if they had responded to 9-11, not with a war on terror, but with a legal campaign, for example, you know, uh, taken a, a justice approach where they tried to get cooperation from countries around the world to arrest terrorists uh, and perhaps take them to the International Court of Justice um, or something like that, you know, used international law as a way of prosecuting terrorists, um, the outcome could have been entirely different. Um, but choosing this idea of an endless uh, all-out war actually ended up making things worse. Why did Ackerman begin the book with a prologue on Timothy McVeigh? And who is Timothy McVeigh? They. Okay, so Timothy McVeigh um, was a right-wing white supremacist, um, um, yeah, uh, bomber who bombed the, uh, who, who set off a big bomb in Oklahoma City, uh, the federal building there. Uh, and he killed hundreds of people, including a lot of children who were at a crash. Uh, he did this with a big bomb that he put in a van uh, and drove uh, to that building. Now, interestingly, he was a veteran from the first Iraq war, um, and he was upset with the U.S. government by Waco um, and the way in which uh, the overreaction there led to a lot of fatalities. Um, and I think he starts his book this way because this was the first 
really big um, right-wing terrorist attack in America. Um, and it was also a period of time when um, um, the Clinton administration also started bombing overseas countries uh, to try and fight uh, al-Qaeda. Um, and, you know, it was it, in many ways it had all the origins of the current situation that we currently face. So it had the growing war against so-called Islamic extremism that was starting to take place and the, the fight against al-Qaeda. But, you know, obviously today we have a major serious terrorist threat from other right-wing extremists, very similar to Timothy McVeigh, um, who've, who've also come out of, you know, the ongoing war on terror and the invasion of Iraq, and that, that sort of play into that whole thing. Part of this, what was happening in America, has quite deep roots. Uh, the, for instance, the rise of the gun culture. I have a cousin. She was a park ranger, a national park ranger for a long time. And when she started, she never carried a gun. And by the time she finished, she was required to have one at all times. And this is national parks. It's not a big city. Mm. And there was a, almost a hate of the government in many places. Do you, should we have even stricter gun laws? in New Zealand? Should the, every gun be registered? Yes, that's my mm -hmm. opinion. I mean, I'm, I'm with, um, you know, the police commissioner that um, it's a real problem in New Zealand that we don't know where all the guns are. We know who gun owners are, but we don't know where the guns are and we don't know how many guns they have. And we don't know whether, they're, whether or not they're giving them away or letting them be stolen or what have you uh, and falling into the hands of criminals. Um, or people who shouldn't have weapons. So I think it just makes sense. You know, if gun owners, gun owners are responsible and have nothing to hide, then they should, they should have no reason to fear a gun register. Um, you know, this is just merely a responsible thing. We, you know, we have hmm. registration people, for our cars as well. So people thought it was going to happen. Now, why hasn't it? Well, I, you know, we don't know. It could it could still happen. But uh, again, it's possible that there's um, pushback and that there's uh, a fear that um, it could lead to resistance. Um, I, I would definitely argue that it's something that we should see. I think gun culture and its connection to um, sort of nationalism and white supremacy and so on uh, is a troubling sort of facet of this. And we do have to be worried about the spread of gun culture. We do have to be worried that the NRA, for example, is active in places like Australia um, and is trying to promote its agenda overseas. So I, I think it is something for New Zealand to be worried about. How did the war on terrorism facilitate right-wing terrorism and right-wing white supremacists in America? And have they similarities in some ways between white supremacists and Muslim fundamentalists? Well, look, I, I think the first thing we have to realize about white supremacy in America is that uh, it predates the war on terror. I mean, it goes back right to the beginning of the foundation of the republic. Sure. Uh, there's always been a very strong... I mean, you had to, if you didn't have white supremacy, you could hardly have slavery. Well, that's right. Slavery and the whole entire sort of economic system... Um, well, as well as the original invasion and the um, genocide of the indigenous people um, was very much based on this idea of white supremacy, you know, sort of the idea of manifest destiny that the, the white people coming into America were blessed by God and given this this uh, open land and that God, you know, had had made them superior so that they had the right to take land and to exploit it and, and become rich and so on. Um, and that they could use, in, you know, seemingly inferior people to be slaves uh, or whatever. I mean, so white supremacy is kind of built into the American uh, history and culture. It's built into um, the electoral college system, which was a compromise with the, with the slave owning uh, former states. 
Um, it's kind of built into institutions and practices going back the whole time. It's built into their gun culture. It's built into, you know, the, the kind of um, uh, broader anti-government feelings because the government was seen as promoting um, the end of slavery and uh, trying to promote, um, you know, genuine democracy and rights for everyone rather than maintaining white supremacy. So, you know, these things have, have, have always been there. Now, when the war on terror comes along and the fight against um, Al-Qaeda and, and uh, so-called Islamic extremists occurs, again, this provides the white supremacist movement with um, a strong narrative. So they could argue that, that Muslims were trying to kill them, and that Muslims hated them because they were white, because they were superior, uh, and so on. So I think, you know, the more that the United States um, attacked um, Muslim countries uh, and created anger and grievances over there, and the more that then those uh, Muslims, some of those Muslims fought back violently, the more that then, then emboldened the white supremacists. So they're kind of locked into this violent cycle that there are terrorist attacks by um, so-called Islamic ex extremists, and then there are counterattacks by, um, you know, white supremacists who claim that they're defending uh, against uh, Islamic, Islamic uh, terrorism. So they're kind of tied in there. Um, but and then, you know, as you know, in the United States itself, one of the kind of expressions of white supremacy is the way in which white supremacist um, terrorists are treated differently to um, Islamic extremist terrorists. So whenever there's an Islamic extremist attack, the suspicion falls on all Muslims. Um, and as an entire community, they are treated uh, with suspicion. They're expected to apologize for the actions of the, the people in their community. But when a white supremacist terrorist attacks in America, they're treated entirely differently. They're usually arrested rather than killed uh, during, you know, um, police operations. Um, it's not expected that the entire white community apologizes on behalf of them. It's not that all white people become suspect, suspected as terrorists. In many cases, they don't even uh, consider it white supremacy. They treat them as mentally ill. So they say, oh, look, it was just a, a lone crazy person. This is not someone who is expressing um, the ideology of a broader community, but this is just a lone crazy person. So there are differences in the way they are treated. Well, I'm going to play a, a piece of music and we'll come back. Oh. 
That was um, Children of Darkness by Mamie and Richard Framey from the 60s, and it's a song about living in a time of uncertainty and darkness, and I'm afraid it's still appropriate. We're talking with Richard Jackson, director of the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies, and you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community of Chaos. Richard, why do extreme right-wing American authoritarians consider themselves patriots? Well, look, I, I mean, I think, first of all, we have to recognize that um, sometimes um, their patriotism is a little bit insincere and they, they're using the appeal to patriotism for their own ends. So it's kind of uh, an instrumental tool by which they can gain power and uh, achieve their own interests. Uh, I mean, we know this from, um, you know, people like the Koch brothers who... Um, you know, fund a lot of uh, right-wing things in America. Well, the Koch brothers are just very wealthy people that want to have more and more wealth and complete power. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, if you look at, the, you know, the wealth side of uh, a lot of American um, sort of authoritarians and, and uh, right-wing nationalists, I mean, a lot of it is about keeping access to their own wealth. So, you know, we have to question whether they truly are patriotic or not. But on the other side of it, you know, let's assume that they are uh, sincere. I think it comes down to the fact that they have a particular vision, uh, an ideological vision of what they think an ideal America is. And their vision of an ideal America is rooted in a kind of white supremacist vision, you know, when um, minorities and women and uh, all different groups were subservient to white men, uh, and white men kind of ruled the roost. A kind of 19- some white men kind of ruled the roost. Yeah, well, but a kind of 1950s vision where there was relative harmony uh, and wealth and and privilege, uh, and white men were at the top of the pyramid. And this kind of vision of what America should be and the kind of values that it should have. I mean, when you probe it deeply, it is always deeply hypocritical and it's, um, you know, highly problematic and it's based on a whole series of kind of violence, violences towards different groups. But it's very ideologically driven. And they, I mean, they think that they're being patriotic, but actually the vision of their vision of patriotism is very different to yours and ours. Okay. Why do working class people, particularly men in America, feel disadvantaged and angry? And why did many of them support Bernie Sanders and then turn to Donald Trump? Because they're very different people, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Absolutely. But, you know, look, I'm not an expert in American politics, and you're also talking about uh, very diverse groups. But, you know, there are key factors to play in here. And one is the effects of globalization and the kind of deindustrialization that's occurred across, across large swathes of America. Uh, the relentless pr- pursuit of profit has meant that a lot of um, capital has been taken out of the U.S. and taken to low-wage parts of the world, and that's led to a lot of deindustrialization, a lot of uh, unemployment and so on. And, you know, the way in which um, different political parties in America have dealt with that is to kind of enhance the culture wars and appeal to senses of identity rather than, uh, you know, senses of class. And I think, you know, populists, and that's populists both on the left wing and the right wing, uh, have tried to appeal to um, a group of Americans who feel disenfranchised from the political establishment. Well, they are disenfranchised to a large extent. Well, absolutely. No, no, they are disenfranchised. I mean, in fact, there's the... The demographics in the Northwest of the Rust Belt, people actually dying younger for the first time in 50, in a, probably the first time in the, in the 20th, well, first time in the last 100 years. Yeah. No, this is, this is right. And also the electoral college system and the way party politics works in America, uh, the incumbency rates, you know, the political party machines, donations, lobbyists, and so on. I mean, People are disenfranchised. People are, you know, disillusioned. 
Um, and so when populists come along, either on the right or the left, uh, this appeals to people because it's uh, it promises them a kind of empowerment and it kind of promises to lift their dignity and give them access to political power and influence that they haven't had. So the thing is, the problem is that it's kind of shallow because it doesn't deal with the inherent structures of the political system. Uh, you know, it doesn't actually lead to radical change. It's basically rooted around key personalities who say, if you elect me, then I will be the ones, you know, to lift you up. However, they probably can't actually realize those promises because the party political machines and the structure of the economy and the class-bound nature of the political system means that it's unlikely that real change is going to occur. Bernie Sanders is a good example of this because it appears to me that the, the backers of the Democratic Party back when Bernie Sanders was running against Clinton for the primaries, would have preferred Trump over Bernie Sanders, even though they were members of the Democratic Party. And many of the people around Sanders were more left-wing than he was. He's probably the most left-wing candidate for president we've had since Roosevelt, or America's had some. But the people around him were further left-wing, such as the Congresswoman from New York, Alexander Cortez, but also many of the advisors and so on. Yeah, this is right. So, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but um, the in in real terms, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are relatively close together in in a political sense, and they they occupy a kind of center position which doesn't want radical change in either direction, either towards the right wing or the left wing. Uh, uh, both, you know, the establishment people have a kind of a bipartisan consensus on how uh, the American economy and foreign policy should be. And, and so when people like um, Sanders comes along and threatens to radically change the system uh, and radically threaten particularly the rich, um, this this is a challenge to the both sides of the both sides of the aisle, both parties, and so they rally against him. I think, you know, and they they try to make sure that he he isn't elected. Okay, what happened to democracy and privacy in America after nine eleven? Well, I think, you know, we have to look very carefully at the U.S. Patriot Act that was passed uh, immediately after 9-11 uh, in a very short piece of time uh, with only one um, person voting against it, Barbara Lee, um, the only person who said, you know, I'm not voting for something that I haven't even had time to read and whose provisions are really far extending. I mean, at, at that point of time, it gave the security services in the United States, the power of uh, surveillance that went far beyond anything before. And since then, um, surveillance powers of the U.S. Um, security forces ha has gone right through the roof. Uh, and later on, we saw from the Snowden revelations just how far the NSA had gone in um surveilling everyone's electronic communications, uh, both, you know, phone and, and email and, and internet activity. Uh, but they were also surveilling, you know, the leaders of allied countries, the members of the United Nations. I mean, pretty much everyone. Um, and, you know, these kinds of things proved to be very corrosive uh, in terms of democracy, because once people know they're being watched, then they have to be careful about what they have to, what they can say. Then they can be worried about um, whether or not they're expressing the right political opinions and whether they'll get in trouble for those opinions. I think another factor that plays in here is that George Bush's rhetoric about you're either with us or with the terrorists meant that it became difficult to criticize the United States government for actions it was taking in the war on terror. And so Pete, that kind of suppressed democratic debate as well. And I think, you know, the whole uh, nationalistic fervor that was created by the war, again, dampened 
you know, robust democratic debate. So people became reluctant to uh, really fight hard in a democratic way for alternative policies and positions. So, you know, in many ways, the war on terror and all the measures that were brought in and the kind of, yeah, coercion that was used against people uh, to discipline people and to, to, to watch them and, and try and control what they, what they thought and what they read and what they thought um, over the years. That's, you know, this has been one of the costs of 20 years of war on terror. Does New Zealand have to worry about it? We've got who talk. What's Five Eyes, for instance? So Five Eyes is is a security arrangement between, um, you know, all the main Anglophone countries, uh, the United States, the UK, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, uh, who agree to share intelligence and work together uh, on security matters. Um, And again, you know, you have to say this is kind of a white supremacist um, uh, rooted organization because it doesn't, you know, include others. Um, Very much rooted in in what's called the Anglosphere, which is um, the English-speaking countries and colonies. Um, You know, and... It's been implicated very much in some of the scandals that um, that Snowden and others have uncovered uh, about surveillance and about the misuse of their powers, uh, you know, against people, including against um, dissidents and opponents and protesters. So, yeah, we do have to kind of be worried, I think, a little bit um, about New Zealand's involvement in that. Um, and particularly the way in which um, there are aspects to it that the the government likes to keep secret and won't really reveal, and we can't really have a public debate about that. And Nikki Hager has done a great service to the country in in revealing a lot of what's been going on there and and what we have to be worried about. I can't hear you anymore. What about the legislation we're considering now on terrorism in New Zealand? Yeah, well, look, as you know, I, I'm a little worried about that. I've, I've written a few things in the media and I've made a um, submission to that. I'm concerned that it's it, it expands the definition of what constitutes terrorism. Um, and that's, you know, what, what constitutes terrorism is kind of arbitrary. It's, it's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, and that can sometimes be uh, misused by governments, particularly against people that they don't agree with. Um, it increases the ability of the security services to uh, put surveillance on people. Um, and I don't think expanded surveillance powers is a, is a good idea, particularly given the, his- the, the history of the misuse of surveillance uh, in this country and, and overseas. Um, and I also think there's a real issue there with the whole idea of trying to make it a crime to uh, plan for terrorism or prepare for terrorism, because that involves trying to interpret people's intent. You know, and I think overseas we've seen a lot of innocent people get caught up um, when they've been accused of preparing for terrorism, even though they've been engaged in very innocent activities. And the biggest problem for me is that all of these increased powers of the government um, actually have no basis in evidence. There's no evidence from anywhere, uh, even after 20 years of, of these kinds of laws, that they will actually work, that they actually help to decrease the amount of terrorism that that a country might be at risk of. Is there any opposition to this kind of law in New Zealand? Yeah, look, I I think the Greens are are worried about it um, and a couple of the other smaller parties um, and certainly a lot of, uh, you know, academic experts and, and some of the legal scholars in New Zealand are also very concerned about it as well. So hopefully that amounts to a bit of opposition and hopefully, you know, some of that will be listened to uh, as the as the legislation goes through the different phases uh, in Parliament at the moment.
Ackerman talks about the war on terror actually became a mechanism for having a white supremacist terrorism, right-wing terrorism, excused and not dealt with. Could you talk about that? Yeah, well, look, I, you know, there are different aspects to this, but one is certainly that, um, you know, the United States government is, in its response to the terrorism, is not really um, uh, concerned with with facing up to the real roots of terrorism. Uh, so it doesn't try to deal with the causes of terrorism. Uh, it keeps trying to deal with the symptoms. So it tries to kill the terrorists or um, capture the terrorists or, you know, prevent the terrorists from carrying out acts, but it doesn't try to deal with what motivates the terrorists. So in that sense, it kind of excuses terrorism and gives it a pass, but it, it doesn't really want to deal with it. And part of the, the reason for that is that, I mean, in a way, as we've kind of alluded to, terrorism gives the United States government a ready-made excuse for things like expanding its powers, its powers of surveillance and, you know, the, the security powers that the government has. It also gives it an excuse to you know, invade other countries, to um, engage in military cooperation, to expand military bases, to spread, you know, American power and influence to other countries. So in that way, the fear of terrorism and the continuation of terrorism um, is a useful tool okay. and can be a useful tool for the government to achieve other mm -hmm. things that it's, it's wanting to do. Drone, drones and things like automated warfare have actually increased considerably under the war on terrorism. Does this make continued war more likely if you can um, kill people from a distance without exposing yourself too much to retaliation? And also people may feel they can wash their hands if they're if they're distant enough from the people they kill. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're completely right about this. And one of the things we've seen over many years of the war on terror is that um, the United States government has become less reluctant, uh, sorry, more reluctant to use um, troops on the ground uh, because, you know, the war in Iraq in particular led to so many casualties that it was having a, a bad effect domestically back in the United States. Uh, and so over time, um, they've taken to using remote warfare, where you don't have to put any troops in danger, but you can just use drones or missiles or, or other forms of technology to, to kill um, terrorist suspects. But you may be actually killing more civilians that way than if you didn't. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it actually doesn't, um, reduce the number of terrorists, and it may actually increase the number of terrorists. And I think it's very, very concerning because what we're seeing now is the spread of drone technology, not just to a lot of other countries around the world who are starting to use drones themselves in their own counterterrorism operations or against opponents, but we can also envisage a time when terrorist groups themselves have drones. And when there's a you know, a situation in, in, in future years where terrorists are using drones to attack Western cities. Um, we may regret the fact that we've uh, developed this technology and expanded its use around the world, and then it becomes uh, a weapon that gets turned against Western countries themselves. And to get back to my earlier point, the, the point is that none of this actually deals with the roots of terrorism. It doesn't deal with the causes of why people decide to become terrorists in the first place. It doesn't resolve the conflicts. It just spreads the violence and changes the form that the violence takes. And I think one of the big challenges for us going forward, particularly now that the U.S. has withdrawn from Afghanistan uh, as well, is to think about how can we actually start to deal with the causes of these conflicts that lead people to, to want to engage in violence in the first place? How can we try and create more peaceful societies 
where you don't need drones because you don't actually have any terrorism. How can we counter the erosion of democracy in the beginning in the West? I mean, well, can you talk about the indifference of American politicians and intellectual elites to the general erosion of, of democracy? Well, look, I, you know, I don't think this is a problem just in the United States, but I think more broadly, there's what we've seen in the last sort of 30 or 40 years is a real problem with the nature of politics in Western, particularly in Western societies, but also in those societies where the West has tried to impose forms of liberal democracy in other societies. And that is the forms of liberal democracy that we have are actually disempowering to ordinary people. Uh, they kind of give all the power to elites and those elites become entrenched and those elites become beholden to, to economic elites. And the whole thing becomes a way in which sort of late modern capitalism becomes upheld um, and doesn't really change for the good of the ordinary people. And that's why you've seen kind of revolts. You've seen insurrections around the world. And that started with the Occupy movement. But we've also seen it in the Black Lives Matter movement and also anti-globalization struggles. Uh, and we, you know, in many ways, the rise of, of right wing and left wing populism and populist movements is also a kind of revolt against that um, entrenched, um, you know, political elite and political dominance of the of the democratic system. So my solution here is to focus on popular democracy, to focus on democracy at the local level, to try and empower people to take um, political action and to try and um, get involved in, in local politics and in, in forms of political decision-making and, and practice in their local area, which, which affect their lives. So populism, sorry, popular democracy from below. And I think that's what we've got to try and focus on. It's all very well to try and focus on uh, elections every three years or five every five years or four years or whatever. But in between that time, we need to all be working uh, at a local level to re-energize our democracies. So is this, what, is this what gives you hope for the future? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, if you if you just read the news every day, you'll be depressed because the news only really reports all the conflicts that are going on, uh, reports, you know, the big forms of violence that are taking place, you know, the conflicts between the great powers and so on. But if you uh, look at a website, you know, like Waging Nonviolence uh, or if you watch other alternative news sites, um, democracy now and 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 other places that you can find on the on the web you'll see that ordinary people are all over the world are engaging in local struggles and local forms of, of democratic decision making they're taking um, responsibility for their own lives they're um, really trying to uh, create new societies and new communities in their own areas um, and this is some um, really invigorating uh, democracy. And I, I think out of these kinds of local struggles, we're seeing new kinds of consciousness and new forms of uh, struggle and new forms of democracy that give me a great deal of hope. Well, how would... You've mentioned nonviolence. How do you use nonviolence to promote democracy? Not to just have things happen that you want to see happen, but to promote democracy itself. Well, nonviolence is a form of democracy. I mean, all the nonviolent movements that I know, um, you know, the whole point of them is that they're organized and led not by one top-down individual who uh, has a rigid hierarchy, but by a group of people who voluntarily come together. I mean, this is democracy in action when when thousands of citizens get together uh, and march or when they engage in civil disobedience uh, or when they um, form committees and do research and come up with proposals and then try and, you know, create 
um, communities that work together in local areas to build gardens or to feed the poor or to build low-cost housing uh, or whatever, they are engaging in, in democratic collective okay. action. So it's democracy in action. It appears to me that when a democracy fails, when an elite takes over and uh, delivers economic policy for the 1%, this is really bad things happen. We, You could look at this in New Zealand, actually, in the, in the 18, 1980s and early 90s with so-called Roger Douglas, where a few people took over the democracy or so. And, and nobody really opposed it. The people did. I remember a Regent Theater was full of people that wanted to go on strike. The, the leader of the uh, trade union movement at that time, who later became Sir Douglas, Ken Douglas, uh, opposed it. So we didn't do anything. And, and inequality grew quite fast when you forego democracy. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, th this is what's happened. Inequality is one of the okay. key issues of our time. Well, thanks a lot for coming on board. It's been My good to talk pleasure. with you. And nice talking to you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.